0: Nuclear deterrence. That's the argument put forth by nuclear weapons states, that we need to have nukes because the other side has nukes, and in order to keep the nuclear status quo and keep them from using theirs, we need to have ours and we can't give them up. Ever. But then you hear from a genuine expert with a different perspective. The new head of the international campaign to implement the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons— And when it comes to the concept of deterrence, she tells you: Deterrence is based on the assumption of
1: 100% rationality and predictability by all actors, including one's enemies, 100% of the time. That's a really bold assumption to make. Of course, the theory of deterrence cannot deter accidents, it can't deter miscalculations or unhinged leaders or terrorist groups or cyber attacks or simple mistakes. And then we know there've been many of those over the decades. Deterrence is also based on the implicit threat to use nuclear weapons. In other words, the threat to indiscriminately kill and maim huge numbers of civilians in the most cruel, painful and lingering ways, not to mention the slow death from starvation that survivors would face, according to recent research on the impact of a nuclear winter on food production. So that's one thing, the focus on deterrence, and
0: recognize that nuclear weapons are everyone's business. Well, when Melissa Park, the new executive director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, spells out with clarity and precision exactly why deterrence is a deeply flawed concept being used to convince governments and all the rest of us that we cannot live without nuclear weapons— When it's closer to the truth that we cannot live with them. That's when you begin to understand how we're being manipulated into being stuck in that awful, dangerous, deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? She is the new Executive Director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, the group behind the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. We talk about what it's like to step into such a pivotal role on the world stage, how ICANN is working to align more closely with climate activists, and specifics on how any of us can move forward to give our support, in a meaningful way, to getting rid of nukes forever. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than emerged from the Iowa caucus on Monday night. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 16, 2024, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting in Japan, where TEPCO... Tokyo Electric Power Company, the operator of the wrecked Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, said it has no new safety worries and envisions no changes to the plant's decommissioning plans even after the deadly earthquake on January 1st struck on the western coast of that country. The magnitude 7.6 quake and dozens of strong aftershocks have left 222 people dead and 22 still unaccounted for. Two reactors at the Shika nuclear power plant on the western coast of the quake-struck Noto Peninsula initially said that there was no damage and nothing to worry about. But Shika's operator, Hokuriku Electric Power Company, later reported temporary power outages due to damage to transformers, the spilling of radioactive water from spent fuel cooling pools, and cracks on the ground, though no radiation is reported to have leaked outside. But Nuclear Regulation Authority officials said Shika's operators should consider the possibility of additional damage to transformers and other key equipment as aftershocks continue. Back at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant disaster site, TEPCO is planning to start a fourth release of radioactive tritium-contaminated water from the wrecked nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean as of late February. As a result of these water releases, both China and Russia have banned all seafood imports from Japan over safety concerns. That's making no difference at Fukushima, where the fifth and sixth discharges of radioactive water are currently scheduled to occur during the fiscal year ending March 2025. The water has been treated to remove many radioactive elements, but tritium, an isotope of hydrogen, is not possible to filter out. While Japan claims, quote, tritium levels in surrounding waters since the initial discharge have met predetermined standards and are below the World Health Organization's guidelines for drinking water quality, it doesn't go into what those levels are, who set them, what the guidelines were for setting those levels, And whether Japan is ready to bottle that water and sell it and use it exclusively on the premises of nuclear organizations and the government itself. Leave it to China via the publication ChinaDaily.com to point out that nobody is drinking this so-called treated water despite TEPCO's claims of meeting tritium standards. An article published on January 16 pointed out that research on the impact of low-dose radiation exposures on human health are not currently being conducted in Japan. After the earthquake and tsunami that struck the Fukushima plant in March of 2011, Japan began research in this area, but it came to a halt due to resistance. Masahi Goto, a former nuclear power plant engineer who has become critical of the industry, said, It is now believed that as long as the radiation levels are reduced, it is acceptable to release radioactive substances, which is incorrect. Simply lowering the concentration of radioactive substances doesn't eliminate the danger to humans. He went on to point out that the amount of the first batch of nuclear contaminated water discharged from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean is greater than the average amount of nuclear wastewater released by All the nuclear power plants in Japan annually in the five years before the Fukushima accident in 2011, concluding Even if the contaminated water is diluted, it will still have an impact on the marine environment. TEPCO's claim that diluting and discharging nuclear contaminated water into the sea is safe is not scientifically sound. In U.S. news, we have a series of articles we will link to on the website including Carl Grossman's counterpunch article, New York Times Minimizes Impacts of Three Mile Island. This was in its obituary this week for Joseph Hendry, who was chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission at the time of the Three Mile Island accident. While the nuclear party line remains that nobody died at Three Mile Island, researchers have determined that there were substantial deaths as a result of of the Three Mile Island radiation releases, including Stephen Wing and his colleagues at the University of North Carolina. Wing, an associate professor of epidemiological said, the cancer findings, along with studies of animals, plants, and chromosomal damage in Three Mile Island area residents, all point to much higher radiation levels than were previously reported. And this research was published in Environmental Health Perspectives, the journal of the US National Institute of Environmental Health Science. We'll have an article that John LaForge published in Counterpunch and now Beyond Nuclear International entitled U.S. Prepares for Nuclear War at Foreign Bases and How the Nuclear Attack Rehearsal dubbed Steadfast Noon Actually Ramped Up Our Chances for Nuclear Doom. And a fascinating article from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists on Nuclear-Free New York, How New Yorkers Are Disarming the Legacies of the Manhattan Project. All will be linked on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 656. In international news, the Central African nation of Sao Tome and Principe ratified the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, making it the 70th country to do so. The instrument of ratification was deposited at UN headquarters in New York on January 15. Spain has confirmed a nuclear power phase-out with plans to close the country's nuclear plants by 2035 as it presents energy measures including extended deadlines for renewable projects. The management of radioactive waste and dismantling of the plants, whose shutdown will begin in 2027, will cost about 20.2 billion euros, or 22.4 billion U.S. dollars, and will be paid for by a fund supported by the plant's operators. And Russia has continued to block access by the International Atomic Energy Agency to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the sixth reactor largest nuclear facility in Europe. According to IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi, Russia's actions, quote, impede the IAEA's ability to independently and effectively assess the safety and security situation, including to confirm the declared condition of the reactor facilities, spent fuel pools, and associated safety equipment. This from the man who stood up at COP28 and announced that there were going to be three times as many nuclear reactors in the world by 2050. And now... Nuclear hot seat,
1: nuclear hot
0: seat... Hot seat, out of week. So much numbnutsery, it's hard to choose. But here are two. In October of 2023, the Congressional Commission on the Strategic Posture of the United States released its final report on America's Strategic Posture. This congressionally mandated review of U.S. nuclear strategy, policy, and posture concluded that, quote, America's defense strategy and strategic posture must change in order to properly defend its vital interests and improve strategic stability with China and Russia. But in the entire 160-page report, the word waste, let alone radioactive waste, never appeared. It was all about the my bangs bigger than your bang bombs, with nothing about the harm they do to people and communities, and the environment. Then there's the International Atomic Energy Agency's Atoms for Food Initiative, which claims that by harnessing what they call the advantages of nuclear techniques, they can enhance agricultural and livestock productivity, ensure food safety, reduce food losses, improve nutrition, and win an Oscar for best supporting fiction in service to all things nuclear. Then there is the oxymoron Atoms for Food, the number four is in there to make it look more hip, launched by the International Atomic Energy Agency and the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations to encourage countries to use nuclear and isotope technology solutions to their food insecurity issues, claiming nuclear technology will lead to stronger, healthier, safer crops. And of course, they don't mention the R-word, radiation, or the W-word, waste, instead bragging to build crop improvement programs using the nuclear method of plant mutation breeding. Note that the Atoms for Food initiative is relatively new, having launched October 16-20 to 20 of 2023 at the World Food Forum in Rome. It was described as a youth-led forum, but who was leading the youth? So in a double header of numnutsery, radioactive nuclear waste is erased from a major report. And if you want to grow more food, just nuke it. And that's why IAEA, Atoms for Food, and those behind the Congressional Commission on the Strategic Posture of the United States, you are all this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, NumNuts of the Week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, each week, the nuclear industry provides us with new nightmares, but you couldn't tell any of it was happening if all you follow is mainstream media. That's why Nuclear Hot Seat exists, to give a caring, compassionate, and concerned person like you a regular weekly dose of nuclear news that you can count on to reflect the truth of what's going on. Nuclear Hot Seat is the longest-running program anywhere that focuses exclusively on nuclear issues. Now in its 13th year as a podcast and 8th year as a broadcast, we have a long history of scooping mainstream media on nuclear issues, giving context and continuity to local, national, and international stories. We also work behind-the-scenes providing links, information, and introductions between activists, researchers, and reporters, so that the Honest Nuclear Story has a fighting chance to get out far beyond this show. That's why you can count on Nuclear Hot Seat, to provide you with verifiable, fresh information and an unrelenting perspective every week. But in order to keep doing this work, we need your help. Nuclear Hot Seat runs on donations – And we always need your support. As little as $5 a month, the same as you would spend here in the U.S. for a nice cup of coffee and a tip to a barista, would go a long way towards helping us meet our monthly costs. You can buy Nuclear Hot Seat a cup of coffee a month with a recurring donation of $5. And, of course, be it one time or ongoing, anything you donate can be in any amount. All of it counts towards our monthly nut. We're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means that your donations are tax-deductible. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the red Donate button. If you have Zelle, you can send money directly to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. So don't wait. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com to donate right now and know that whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons began in Australia in 2007, and at the time, no one would have given odds that it could do anything significant to get rid of nuclear weapons. But ICANN was a major force behind passage of the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, or TPNW, the first legally binding international agreement to comprehensively prohibit nuclear weapons, with the ultimate goal being their total elimination. It was adopted on July 7th of 2017, only 10 years after ICANN began, and the same year in which the organization was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for its work on the treaty. It opened for signatures in September of 2017 and entered into force on January 22nd of 2021. There are currently 70 countries that have ratified the treaty, and more are in the process and the pipeline. As of September 2023, ICANN has a new executive director, only the second one they've ever had, Melissa Park. She is an Australian attorney, former member of Australian Parliament, and a longtime supporter of nuclear disarmament. We met when I was covering the second meeting of states' parties of the TPNW, which was held at the United Nations last November after time out for the after time out for physical recovery of from that event and the holidays we were able to speak for nuclear hot seat on thursday january 11 2024 melissa park it is an yeah. honor and a delight to have you here with us this morning on nuclear hot seat it's a great pleasure to be here with you Let's start out with a little bit about you so that we can get oriented to who you are, where you came from, and what your focus is. What is your background?
1: My background is as an international lawyer with the United Nations in places like Kosovo, Gaza, Lebanon, New York, and Yemen. I saw firsthand the appalling impact of war on civilians. After working with the United Nations, I returned to my home country of Australia, And was elected as a Member of Parliament for Fremantle in Western Australia and I um, was representing the seat of Fremantle in Canberra for three terms of Parliament and I also served as Minister for International Development. I then retired from Parliament and became an ICANN Australia Ambassador and when I was in Parliament I was involved in basically issues of human rights, environment, and nuclear
0: disarmament. What was the process that brought you to ICANN? You were already in ICANN, Australia. What brought you to your current position?
1: I learned about a vacancy uh, in the executive director role. It was a person in Australia had had noticed and someone from ICANN and said, uh, is this something that would be of interest to you? And if so, I think you should apply because you? I think you'd be great. Now, this person didn't have any role in the recruitment process, I should add, which was done um, largely through a global search firm. So I thought, yes, um, this role fits very well with my background and my skills and experience. And I think it's, it's the kind of thing, you know, I've been fighting against injustice my whole life and in my view, there's no greater injustice against humanity and the planet than nuclear
0: weapons. On September 1st of 2023, you took the helm as ICANN's executive director, only the second one in its history. What was it like to step into that role?
1: Can I just say that I've got a brilliant staff team and the the team based in Geneva all came to the airport in Geneva to meet me when I arrived from Australia and they had flowers. It was really um, a beautiful beginning. It's been, I have to say, really full on in this role with the steep steep learning curve and a lot of travel, but I felt really, really well supported by this incredible team, by the International Steering Group, which is like uh, ICANN's board and ICANN's partners all over the world who all sent me beautiful messages of welcome. And I think the the nuclear ban week in New York, where I met you, around 2MSP, was certainly a great introduction to all facets of the international campaign. Now that I've been on board for about five months, I feel I'm I'm getting my feet on the ground, but I've still got a lot to learn. There's a lot of expertise in this field, and I'm just grateful to be part of this team.
0: ICANN is now a well-established, internationally respected organization, winner of the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize. It is acknowledged as a successful entity. Yet, especially when new leadership comes in, there's always room for new approaches, new programs, Mm -hmm. new focus. And I'm wondering what you have in mind or what you've been able to get started already that will be something new and different or expanded from what ICANN has been doing so far?
1: Obviously, what came out of 2MSP was a very strong focus on the flawed delusional theory of nuclear deterrence. And so we certainly want to focus our campaign more strongly on raising the awareness of the public and policymakers in nuclear armed states and other states that endorse the use of nuclear weapons in their defense policies. That deterrence is a flawed theory. It's contradicted by the history of the Cold War. Uh, We know that both during the the Cuban Missile Crisis and the early 80s, there were close calls when nuclear war was averted not by deterrence but by blind luck. Deterrence is based on the assumption of 100% rationality and predictability by all actors, including one's enemies, 100% of the time. That's a really bold assumption to make. Of course, the theory of deterrence cannot deter accidents. It can't deter miscalculations or unhinged leaders or terrorist groups or cyber attacks or simple mistakes. And then we know there have been many of those over the decades. Deterrence is also based on the implicit threat to use nuclear weapons. In other words, the threat to indiscriminately kill and maim huge numbers of civilians in the most cruel painful and lingering ways, not to mention the slow death from starvation that survivors would face, according to recent research on the impact of a nuclear winter on food production. So that's one thing, the focus on deterrence. The second thing is, I think it's really important that we break down the silos where only so-called defense or security experts get to talk about nuclear weapons. And recognize that nuclear weapons are everyone's business. Nuclear weapons are not separate from other global concerns, they're deeply interconnected. Nuclear weapons worsen environmental problems, divert essential funds away from addressing pressing global challenges like climate change, social inequality, and they undermine the the principles of human rights and justice. Can you imagine a greater human rights violation and nuclear weapons in terms of the right to life and the right to health and the right to a clean environment for example but we particularly want to build stronger links with the climate uh, and environmental movements the three most pressing existential threats facing us nuclear weapons climate change and species extinction also known as biodiversity loss and those three existential crises are interconnected. And we really need to be working closely with organisations campaigning on these other issues to raise awareness among both the public and politicians of the need to take urgent action on all three. So you could say that while climate change and biodiversity loss are eroding our chances every day, nuclear weapons can end them in an instant. I note that in August last year, more than 150 medical journals from around the world, including The Lancet, issued a joint call for urgent action to eliminate nuclear weapons as a public health priority. And they referenced the 2022 Nature study, which concluded that even a limited nuclear war, say between India and Pakistan, would kill 120 million people outright and cause global climate disruption, leading to a nuclear famine and putting at least 2 billion people at risk. And a major nuclear war, say, between the US and Russia, would kill more than 5.5 billion people, uh, as well as most other life forms in a nuclear winter. So we can say for sure that nuclear weapons are bad for health, uh, they're bad for the environment, um, not just climate, but all of nature. Biodiversity is already under extreme threat, with 70% decline in animal species in the last 50 years, according to WWF. And some scientists say that the sixth mass extinction is underway, but the first caused by humans. So a nuclear winter would cause a, the sixth mass extinction to come even sooner. So there are a number of links between environment and nuclear weapons. Uh, there's a number of other. Is it? Would you think would of interest to mention of just a few of the other connections because. I think it's it's a really important point about this intersectionality. Please go ahead. In addition to nuclear winter, there are further connections between nuclear weapons and the other two existential threats of climate change and biodiversity loss. Nuclear weapons production and testing damage the environment and increase emissions, exacerbating the climate crisis. At the same time, the increase in extreme weather events and rising sea levels caused by the climate crisis accelerates the risks of radioactive contamination from nuclear weapons activities. We know that nuclear war will become much more likely uh, due to a climate crisis-driven rise of resource scarcity and conflict. And nuclear war would have a devastating impact on the environment and all living things and there was some really interesting research that came out last year from a Japanese researcher, Professor Kunio Kaiho, uh, who concluded that the priority for animal species conservation must be, one, to prevent nuclear war, two, decrease deforestation, three, reduce pollution, and four, limit global warming in that order. And That research highlights the fact that while every species will be harmed in a nuclear war, only one species can stop it and that it is a matter of urgency that we do so. So in our view the abolition of nuclear weapons is an essential part of respecting and protecting the planet, the climate, um, humanity and all living things. Indeed there can be no nuclear weapons on a sustainable planet So those are the two main changes or different focus points for us as we're going forward.
0: Are there any strategies that you are pursuing in this melding of issues with each other that you can tell us about right now, either a program or a way of approaching it that perhaps is a bit different than anything that's been used before?
1: Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think we need to break out of the silos where these issues are only discussed in uh, security and disarmament fora. It should be an item on the agenda of the United Nations, whether it's the development agenda or the WHO or the World Health Organisation, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and the Human Rights Council, or United Nations Environment Programme, instead of it only being the UN Office of Disarmament Affairs that talks about nuclear weapons, we should have, be having every UN agency talking about nuclear weapons because they affect everything and everyone. And we need to be speaking to all the different constituencies, have got trade unions and obviously medical associations are already heavily involved in this issue. You know, we're already working very well on appealing to different sectors of the community through our city's appeal and through um, working with financial institutions to divest from nuclear weapons investment. We're working with artists and, you know, there's a, there's with young people and it, so there's a whole lot of different ways that we're engaging, but I think young people are key to making that connection between the environment and nuclear weapons. And I say that young people just get it straight away. Indigenous people have always understood the connection between people and nature, that, that there's no separation. They're not. There's not, We're not separate from nature. We're a part of it. And I think a lot of the problems in the world have really come about through humanity's sense of separation, from, of disconnection from nature and from each other and so it's about bringing us back to seeing the connections that we're all we're all part of the the one this one planet and we all need to change our ways really as as a species in order to preserve the planet and and ourselves
0: you touch upon one point that i want to visit head on and that is ICANN has done an amazing job of attracting and holding young activists. I saw that when I went to the pre-meeting on Sunday before the meeting of states parties and walked into a room of 250 activists, most of which I believe were certainly under 40, if not under 30. And the joke here that I've heard in the United States is that a young anti-nuclear activist is anybody under 60. (laughs) What has been done to create or solidify this outreach to young campaigners, and what are you doing to move it forward to continue their participation and expand upon it?
1: Since ICANN was started in 2007, we've focused on raising awareness and knowledge about nuclear weapons issues among young people, for example, through initiatives like the Hiroshima Academy and holding youth forums around key events, like the meetings of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons States parties, and at last year's um, G7 summit. We also make our campaign messages accessible by using social media, including platforms preferred by younger people, usually not ones that I'm very familiar with myself, but (laughs) luckily most of the team is much younger than me, so it's, it's not a problem. There seems to be a bit of a myth that young people aren't concerned about nuclear weapons, and we've found that young people are increasingly seeing nuclear weapons and the threat they pose as an issue that is directly relevant to them as they think about the future in the same way that climate change and species extinction threatens all of our futures. Uh, Nuclear weapons could threaten our world and much more suddenly. I recently heard the use of nuclear weapons described as climate change at supersonic speed, which I thought was a very apt way of putting it. Younger people are integral to our campaign and we collaborate with groups like Youth for TPNW, which are partners of ICANN, and we're seeing young people take a leading role in several organisations across the world, including ones representing people affected by nuclear testing in Kazakhstan and the Pacific Islands, who addressed the recent meeting of states' parties.
0: One area that I would like to bring up is a concern that I heard voiced at the meetings by many of the participants, and that is that ICANN does not address the connection between nuclear reactors and nuclear weapons. I've heard the phrase used that every nuclear reactor has a bomb in the basement. And we know that the plutonium that is produced in the waste stream of commercial power reactors can be turned relatively easily into weapons-grade plutonium. Indeed, that's how India first got its bomb. Yet, I've not seen anything from ICANN on the website, in the press materials, or in personal meetings on this connection between weapons and nuclear power reactors. Why is that? And is this an official stance by ICANN? And if so, how hardwired is it into the organization?
1: Thank you for that question. I think that's a really important and interesting question. When I first arrived uh, as executive director, I asked about that. And the position is that well, okay, doesn't take a position officially. And the reason is that there are there's no there's no fixed view by parties on to the treaty about nuclear use of nuclear energy. It's something that there are states on both sides of the argument. And so in order to be able to promote the treaty and to, I guess, facilitate dialogue between countries, ICANN has wanted to have a sort of neutral role in relation to the treaty. But it, I don't think there's anything that stops any of us talking about the fact that clearly Nuclear reactors and nuclear power programs have been instrumental in producing fissile material for use in nuclear weapons since the first atomic bombs. And some countries' nuclear power programs could even be characterized as a byproduct of their nuclear weapons programs and vice versa. Both nuclear weapons programs and nuclear power programs produce nuclear waste that, as we know, is a long-term environmental threat to which humanity is yet to find a sustainable solution, meaning we have to devote huge resources and money to storage, uh, which could be used for more socially beneficial and productive things, such as measures to prevent further climate change and species extinction. But, I mean, even more, of course, there is the damage that is done to the environment. And I was just recently reading Joshua Frank's book called Atomic Days which talks about the Hanford Nuclear Reservation in Washington State, which is described as the most toxic place in America. They've got something like 55 million gallons of highly radioactive waste stored in 177 underground steel containers that are starting to leak into the the neighbouring river.
0: The Columbia River. Yes,
1: and the bill for that stands at The cleanup stands at $677 billion so far and they haven't even got a solution for it yet. So the whole thing is pretty insane. I mean, I have a strong personal view on this. I understand the sensitivities around the treaty, which, as we know, is not a perfect treaty, but it is what we have and we're working with it and on the basis that we hope it will lead to the total elimination of nuclear weapons.
0: If there's ever an opportunity for at least a nod in the direction of recognizing the connection that doesn't change the path of ICANN, but perhaps gives hope and a little bit of bolstering to those who are working on the other parts of the nuclear fuel chain.
1: Can I say, I think, I mean, there's groups doing amazing work like Beyond Nuclear and others, and ICANN is not just one NGO, it's a civil society movement. Made up of more than 670 partner organizations, and many of them are working on that issue of the very strong connection between nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. I mean, obviously, it's the same materials and the same process to make both. And so, uh, you know, there's a very strong connection, not to mention the lasting impact that injury that's been done to so many peoples around the world from both mining for uranium and all the whole nuclear cycle. So I think it is something that I'm certainly happy to talk about. And and I know that many others are in the movement as well.
0: Thank you for that. The third meeting of states' parties on the Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons will be held in March of 2025. Mm -hmm. What have you learned from the just completed round of second meetings of states parties that you would like to see changed or expanded for the next meeting?
1: The TPNW has now had two meetings of states parties, which were highly successful. The second meeting of states parties uh, final declaration produced a strong condemnation of nuclear deterrence and set up a process for an inquiry to be held in the lead up to the third meeting of states parties which will have an inquiry and and evidence about the the evidence for humanitarian consequences and the evidence for the risks of nuclear weapons as a way of showing the case that the risk from having nuclear weapons far outweighs any possible benefit that might be um, inferred from nuclear deterrence. Obviously, we'll continue our work to strengthen the treaty in 2024 and build on the impact that the TPNW has already had on the behaviour of countries. For example, in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, under the cover of nuclear threats, the Vienna declaration from the first meeting of states' parties included the strongest condemnation yet of nuclear threats. Uh, which are specifically banned by the TPNW. And that set the bar that others have followed in their condemnation of nuclear threats. So we see this in how the declaration's language has since been echoed by the G20 and individual leaders like President Xi Jinping, Chancellor Olaf Scholz and NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg and that's been really important that that nuclear threats condemnation is kind of been picked up and become part of the norm now. And there are two initiatives that we will focus on in the run-up to the third meeting of states' parties. So we will work to support the decision of the TPNW states to challenge the doctrine of deterrence, as I mentioned before, and we'll be strengthening our cooperation with the climate and environment movements Um, because of those three most pressing existential threats needing to be worked on at the same time. The one other issue that really needs to be mentioned is that, as we saw during the second meeting of states' parties and the the first meeting, the people directly affected by the use of nuclear weapons in conflict, the hibakusha, and those affected by nuclear weapons testing, who are mainly Indigenous and or colonised peoples, were central to those proceedings. And the third meeting of states' parties is going to hear a report on a proposed international trust fund to support the victims of nuclear weapons use and testing and for cleanup of the contamination left from the 2,000 tests that have been carried out since 1945. Really excitingly, we know that more countries will be ratifying the treaty soon. So uh, we've got Indonesia and Brazil, that have um, notified us that they are on the verge of ratifying. They are two of the largest countries by population in the world, and that shows that support for the treaty is growing, and we expect that we will shortly pass the milestone of having more than half the countries of the world having signed, ratified, or acceded to the treaty.
0: That will certainly be something for all of us to celebrate. Yes, it will.
1: So I think the two meetings of state parties that have happened so far have have shown us that the TPNW is the only forum where disarmament is actually happening, given that progress on the Non-Proliferation Treaty has been stalled since 2010 and mired in division. The biggest challenge for us obviously lies in convincing nuclear-armed states and their allies to join the treaty, but we are optimistic that this can be done. Uh, we've, we've some of those states, like including Germany, Norway, and Australia, did attend the first two meetings of the TPNW states parties as observers. And we know we have there are many parliamentarians in those countries who are calling for their governments to join the treaty and support our campaign. And we're working directly with those parliamentarians to show that true security lies not in so-called deterrence, but in getting rid of nuclear weapons.
0: On a more personal note, you yeah. have what is arguably not only one of the most important positions on the planet, but one of mm-hmm. the most relentlessly stressful. How do you keep yourself in the full upright position without the loss of health or hope?
1: <laughs> Thank you. I um, I think humor is really important and connection with other people, uh, with like-minded souls and that's being around the staff team here is really uh, fantastic. And of course, liaising with our, our partner organisations around the world. Everybody's so motivated and energised. Uh, it's fantastic. And it, it gives me a lot of energy. I also um, try to have a daily meditation and exercise program. And I follow a plant-based diet, which I think is is good, uh, good for the planet. and. Good for the animals and and good for me too. So um, all of those things help. Yeah, I think most of all it's about doing something that has purpose and meaning and to make a difference in the world. That's the best thing that can make you feel good and know that you're contributing to something more than just consuming stuff and producing garbage.
0: (laughs) I swear to God, I'm going to use that phrase, (laughs) consuming consuming stuff and making garbage, the story of the human race. And then after taking a few moments to regroup, we concluded the interview. How can people around the world, including the highly motivated listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat, best engage with ICANN and help you carry your message forward?
1: Thank you for that question. Uh, There are a number of different ways that people listening to us can get involved in the campaign. There's a lot of information on our website. And if you're part of an organisation that is not already an ICANN partner, you can persuade your colleagues uh, and families um, to join us, or you can join uh, with an organisation that is already an ICANN partner. You can get together with others who share your opposition to nuclear weapons, to organise actions, to draw the attention of your community to the threat they pose, and how the TPNW is the way we can get rid of them for good. The focus of ICANN is to persuade all countries to join the treaty. So we encourage all campaigners and partners to lobby their political representatives and governments to sign and ratify their TPNW if they haven't already. And, of course, we have ICAN Cities for Peel and uh, one of our partner organisations is Mayors for Peace. And so campaigners or people interested can check with their local government to say, are you a part of these campaigns against nuclear weapons? Because Because, of course, cities are the primary targets of nuclear weapons. So local governments have a very direct interest in this issue and it's really interesting that, at least in Australia, I'm not sure about elsewhere, but the local government associations have have come out against you know, nuclear weapons and for signing the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, and they're quite a conservative organisation. That should tell us something. In the US, you would have seen New York has come out, along with many other cities. In, in France, we've just had uh, Lyon joining, uh, and, and Paris has already joined before. And, you know, it's really significant and it really upsets the nuclear armed states when big cities in their country uh, join the appeal, but it makes a big difference. So do that. People can also support our campaign to pressure investors to divest from companies involved in the production of nuclear weapons. So if you're a shareholder, use your voice. If you're a saver or an investor, then make sure your money is not going to companies involved in such activities. Um, And your pension fund, your superannuation funds, your, I can't remember what the is it 501c? 501c3. Funds are not going into supporting nuclear weapons activities. If people need more advice on this, they can contact us and we can let them know uh, what they can do. Already we've seen, thanks to this divestment campaign that we're running, more than a trillion dollars divested from nuclear weapons production. It really does make a difference and it hurts these companies, these nuclear weapons producers, in a way they care about. We also encourage fellow campaigners to respond to news stories about nuclear weapons by writing to their local and national media to argue for the ban on nuclear weapons and letting readers know about the treaty. Those are just some of the things. Um, you can follow us on our website, um, as I said, join an organization or start one and join our campaign.
0: Finally, I want to acknowledge something that I think is a big step for Nuclear Hot Seat and that thrills me. And that is that I can will be coming aboard to provide one report a month on what's going on where you would like to focus our attention, any big wins, anything we can do to support you, the entire content will be produced inside of ICANN. I won't have my fingers all over it. And I'm thrilled to provide a direct link to people who are genuinely interested to hear what you have to say, without it being filtered through mainstream media and whatever nonsense they're going to throw upon it. So I want to thank you for your willingness to come on board and be part of the expansion of nuclear hot seat.
1: Well, thank you, Libby. Thank you for uh, letting us have that platform. I think that's fantastic. It's a fantastic collaboration. You know, we've got such a fantastic team here, and everyone's excited that we're going to be regular contributors to your show.
0: Can't wait for that to start. In the meantime, Melissa Park, I congratulate you on this new position, this new stage in your life and in ICANN and in the future of what we are doing to push back against nuclear weapons. I thank you for your willingness to come on board with a report on Nuclear Hot Seat on a monthly basis. And I really look forward to working with you in the coming months and years as we work to get rid of nukes as best we can. As we work to put ourselves out of business. Ah, that would be the best. I always say to people who promote nuclear, the last thing any of us wants to be able to say is, I told you so. Uh, Yeah,
1: and none of us will be able to either.
0: (laughs) (laughs) For now, Melissa Park, again, congratulations on your position, and thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Melissa Park, Executive Director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN. As you heard during the interview... I am very proud to announce that ICANN will be providing an exclusive report to Nuclear Hot Seat once a month, beginning in February. They'll be letting all of us know what is happening on the front cutting edge of the campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, and it will be free from mainstream media spin and selected omissions. If you can't wait and would like more information on ICANN now, go to their website, ICANW.org, International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons.org, where you can find information on the city's appeal that Melissa's talked about. Learn whether your city has already spoken out and taken a stand in support of the treaty, and if not, how you can move them in that direction. There's also information on how you can use your personal finances, no matter how small, to be part of taking the money out of the nuclear industry. We'll have that link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number six fifty six, and we'll be beginning that ICANN report as of February. Activists,
1: activists, activists, shout outs, shout out, shout out out.
0: this seems to be the season for job opportunities for activists. Last week we told you about a part-time 24-hour-a-week job with the National Radioactive Waste Coalition. We had contact information linked to last week's show, episode number 655. Now, we've learned that Physicians for Social Responsibility is recruiting for the position of lead organizer and policy coordinator, Nuclear Weapons Abolition Program. The job is full-time, comes with excellent benefits, and they're looking for someone right now. The job announcement will be linked on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 656. You can also go to the website, PSR.org, and check into the About category, and click on Careers. And speaking of time of year, we're coming up on what I like to call Nuclear Disaster Alley. The six-week period, which marks the anniversaries of Fukushima on March 11th, Three Mile Island on March 28, and Chernobyl on April 26. If you are part of a group which is planning special events to mark any or all of these dates, please send the info to info at nuclearhotseat.com. For our part, we will again be presenting our annual Voices from Japan, produced with Beverly Finlay Kaneko, to commemorate the Fukushima disaster. That will be posting on March 5th. And we're also looking for updated coverage so that we can expand upon our previous coverage of Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. If you've got information, please share it, because that's what gives us the cutting edge and the advantage over mainstream media. We find out from the grassroots up exactly what's going on, and then we share it with everyone else. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 16, 2024. You know, you deserve to get Nuclear Hot Seat every week delivered in your email right when we get it posted. And in order to get in that queue, it's easy. Sign up for it on your favorite podcast channel or even better for us, just go to NuclearHotSeat.com. That yellow box pops up. You really can't miss it. Put in your first name and your email address and every week, You will get one email, that's all we send out, we don't bug you, we don't sell it, we don't monetize it by making it available to all kinds of spam, one email a week, which will include a link to that week's show and a short description of the show's content. That way you need never miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, because let's face it, there's nuclear news every week. And that's where you come in. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help. Anything at all will support our work, and we will really appreciate it. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2024. Libby Halevi, Nuclear Hot Seat and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. Mention the name of the show, any guests who you cite, and me. In keeping with our opening comments about the false nature of the concept of deterrence, and in honor, or dishonor, of Zachary Collinborn's wrong-headed article Why a Nuclear Weapons Ban Would Threaten Not Save Humanity, we'll be going out on an excerpt from the original cast recording of the 1966 off-Broadway hit, The Mad Show. This is The Hate Song, with lyrics from a crew which includes the Broadway legend Stephen Sondheim and Marshall Bearer, who wrote Once Upon a Mattress, and the Mighty Mouse theme song. For now, this is Libby Halevy of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that as ICANN executive director Melissa Park said, there are better things to do in life than consume and make garbage. Hear, hear! And there you have it. You've just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Hate, everywhere you turn. Well- which we stand. So hand in hand hand in hand. in hand. We're gonna stamp out hate. That's our creed. Wipe out violence, intolerance, and greed.
1: We're gonna start right now. Tomorrow is too late. We're gonna stamp
0: out hate. We're gonna stamp out hate. Stamp it in the ground. Then Make happiness and spread it all around. We'll put an end to grief. We can hardly wait. We're gonna stamp out hate. We're gonna stamp out
1: hate. Sock it in the eye. Shoot it in the stomach, yelling, die,
0: die, die. We'll pull its insides out. And look at what it ate. We're gonna stamp out hate. We're gonna stamp out hate. Show him who's the boss. Take him up a lonely hill and nail him to a cross. Won't it be kicks to watch? The blood coagulate. We're We're gonna gonna stab stab. out Out. hate.
1: It's the bomb.